I want to start today by asking you to think about three people you admire or who have influenced your life and why. Maybe you'll want to jot their names at the top of your sermon notes. It could be a family member. It could be a mentor in your field of work who's influenced how you do your job. Maybe it's a national or global figure. I'll give you a minute to think about that. And I can give you a couple of examples to get you thinking. I think about my own mother and how she took such delight in each one of us children. There were three of us. She had no favorites. And we were all different. But my mom really enjoyed those unique differences and made each one of us feel special and unique. And that is a gift I want to give my children, that they not compare and compete to one another, but they know they are each uniquely loved individually. I think about my youth pastor and his wife who spent tons of time and energy investing in me, gave me a vision for and the encouragement to be a light in a public school setting as a Christian. I think about my professors, many of them, who lived what they taught with such integrity. They didn't just teach about God. They knew him. They walked intimately with him. I don't know who you're thinking about, but all of these people had a positive impact on our lives. We have been changed by their influence on us. It really is remarkable the impact a person can have on another over time. Now, admittedly, each one of these people had or has their flaws. Generally speaking, our flaws are often the flip side of our strengths. If you're thinking of a public figure, that's one of the reasons why reading biographies is so interesting. We see the person's weaknesses as well as their strengths. If people with flaws have such an impact on others, can you imagine what the impact would be by someone without flaws? What if there was someone who always reacted to each human being before them with just the right insight, direction, gentle pushback, and compassion? What if there was a person whose every single conversation or action was rooted in inherent respect, dignity, truth, goodness, genuine regard for others, and humility? I think you know what I'm getting at. Jesus. If you immerse yourselves in the stories of Jesus when he walked this earth in the four gospels, I think it's astounding to me how we always knew the right thing to say, the right thing to do. He uses harsh language and rebuke with one group of people. You brood of vipers, quit managing your appearance and reputation and actually get, live the life God wants you to live. And gentle and kind words with another woman, has no one condemned you? Then go and leave your life of sin. I wonder what kind of impact we would have on each other or on the world if we actually respond to people the way Jesus did. If we loved others the way he did. The good news for us today is that we can. And God wants to help us with that. That is his desire for us. I heard a funny interaction this week by a parent in our congregation and his five-year-old that I thought made this point. 
They were in the car listening to some music, and out of nowhere, as is often the case, the boy said, hey, Dad, how can Jesus be everywhere? Are there so many Jesuses? The dad went on to explain, well, no, there was really only one Jesus who lived and died, was raised again. But, you know, in a way, he wants to give us his spirit and to help us live like him. And maybe it's because I was thinking about this topic, but when I heard this story, I immediately thought, that is why discipleship matters. Doesn't our world need more Jesuses right now? In our hospitals, in our classrooms, at the office, in the boardroom, at the grocery store. Think about the character traits of Jesus. You can think about the names we were just reminded of at Advent. Don't we need more peace? Wise counsel, truth-telling, justice-promoting, outsider-loving, hypocrisy-defying. Doesn't the world need more self-controlled people who also somehow are able to give generously and exuberantly embracing others? Are there so many Jesuses? No, we have one Lord and Savior. And yes... We are to be like Jesus in the spheres of influence he has put us so that people can see what God is like. That's what we mean by discipleship. That's our topic today as we continue in our series, Church Matters. We're going to look at the importance of the church. We have been looking at the importance of the church, why God created it, what its purposes are. We've been using Acts 2, 42 to 47 as a springboard for these ideas. And I hope those verses are becoming familiar to you now. But verse 242, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, alludes to this idea. The early church didn't have an idea that they'd arrived. They were curious, learning, growing. I don't know what preconceptions you have about Christianity, but friends, Christianity is not an end. It is a beginning the Bible uses the metaphor of new life or born again in John 3. And just as our physical lives, we are born as infants and then we grow up. God's desire is not for people to become Christians, one and done. His desire is for people to become Christ-like. More and more every day may we grow in grace as we grow in age. Ephesians 4.12, Christ gave the church these roles, here it is, to equip God's people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In other words, yes, there are to be so many Jesuses in your neighborhood, in your family, at your office, at your school, on the sports team, on Instagram. If that's really the case, the next question is, but is it really possible? Can we actually become people who take on more and more the attributes and character of Jesus? I mean, don't you know how little we're working with here, Amy? I was talking this week with someone and they were referencing a family member who was struggling with addiction and mental health. And he said, yeah, they need a miracle. Yeah, I know the feeling. Sometimes everything in our history and experience says, no, people don't change. 
But what if the impossible is possible with God? What if miracles can and do happen? What if wounded people can, through the gift of amazing trauma therapists, begin to heal? I mean, do we really believe the Holy Spirit is a healer or not? As we think about discipleship today or being a disciple or follower of Jesus, there are a lot of passages we could use. But today I want to remind us of a story that's likely pretty familiar to you because I think it's a powerful metaphor or image for how we are to think about God forming Jesus' likeness in us. It's taken from the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. I'll spend a few minutes looking at two scenes of Mary's life, and then we'll make the connection for us on what this means for us. So first, Mary as a model disciple. Mary is known by theologians as a prototypical disciple. She is a model for how we are to be followers of Jesus. And I think that's interesting because she doesn't actually have very many words attributed to her in the Bible. Aside from her song in Luke 1, she says only a handful of words in Jesus' 33 years, which makes the few words she says take on special significance. The first and main passage I want us to reflect on is Luke 1, 26 to 38, where Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel, told she is going to become pregnant and give birth to Jesus. This is probably fresh in your minds since Christmas was just about a month ago. Excerpts of this passage are in the front of your sermon notes, but you'll remember that at this point in her life, Mary isn't married to Jesus, they're only, or to Joseph, they're only engaged. And the angel tells her, you're going to have a baby. Mary doesn't understand how this is going to happen. She's only a teenager, but she's old enough to know babies don't just suddenly appear in your body. What the angel says is going to occur is impossible by human standards. Verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Then he gives her a concrete example of how a very unlikely older woman, her relative Elizabeth, has also had a miraculous pregnancy. For nothing is impossible with God. Then these words which summarized discipleship so well. Number one, if you're following along in your notes, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Pastor and Professor Daryl Johnson notes that at this point, Mary has three options. She can say to the angel, that's impossible. That kind of thing doesn't happen. No thank you, not interested and resist the invitation from God to serve as the human mother to Jesus Christ, who verse 32 says is the son of the Most High God. Mary doesn't do that. Alternatively, she could respond with frenetic, controlling activity and say, oh, that's a big role, I'll take it from here, and act and behave as if this creation depends all on her. Mary doesn't do that either. She takes the role of the Holy Spirit in this very seriously. Instead, we have this beautiful, rich response of both humility and submission. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you are upset. In other words, what you are inviting me into doesn't make sense. 
It is not what I have expected or anticipated, but I'm following you. You're the one in charge here, and I believe you can do what seems impossible. I submit myself to your invitation. Fast forward nearly 30 years to John 2, verses 1 to 11, where Mary is helping a family friend at a wedding. And you may recall, the wine runs out. And in first century culture, this is very embarrassing for the bride's family. So Mary finds Jesus, tells him the problem. After an initial pushback, Mom, it's not really the time for me to show my stuff yet, she does not take no for an answer. She knows his heart. And she says again some of the only words attributed to her in our Gospels to the servants in John 2, 5, do whatever he tells you. That's number two on your outline. Do whatever he tells you. Now, those are bold words. <laughs> Last week, I was chatting with a spouse, uh, and she was talking about her husband who was not in the room at the time, and I asked them if, if they would do something, and she said, oh, he'll do it. He does whatever I ask him. And I said, wow, is that really a thing? Do spouses do that? <laughs> Paul, you're an amazing husband. Well done. But that's Mary's quick definitive instructions to these servers at the wedding. Do whatever he tells you. 30 years of watching this child, this man, interact with the world and model a different way. She is convinced of his character, his compassion, and his power. She knows it'll be good, whatever it is. She's learned to just obey. And those two responses for us by Mary model exactly what discipleship is. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. And do whatever he tells you. But what does that really mean for us? Now, I want to make four points now about what discipleship is for us based not just on this passage, but a few others as well. Here we go. First, Discipleship is Jesus in you. God wants the very life of Jesus Christ in us. See, in one sense, Mary's experience with the angel was unique. There can and need only be one, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. Thanks be to God. But in another sense, the experience of Mary is to serve as a powerful analogy of what God wants to do in all of us who proclaim faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says in John 15, 4 and 5, abide or remain in me and I will remain in you. The Apostle Paul said it this way to a group of believers in Galatia, in Galatians 4.19, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul is pained like a woman in labor that this church have Christ formed in them. And that word formed he uses is the word for embryo. That is a powerful image. Paul is saying you are to be fashioned in the very core of your being into the resemblance of Jesus Christ. You are to incarnate his ways and his love. Like Mary, the living God wants to put within each one of us our broken lives, the life of his son. John Calvin said of this text, he is born in us that we may live his life. Are there so many Jesuses? 
This is a startling claim. The living God wants to put his life in you, in me, his joy, his self-control, his propensity for mercy and forgiving others, his propensity for justice and truth and protecting the vulnerable, his compassion. We are so weak and inadequate and frail containers for this life. Impossible. But so says the angel, so believes Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. Miracles can and still happen, but we must respond with willingness and submission. Second, Jesus in you, God putting the life of his son in you, will be unique to you. Now, this may seem self-evident, but I have found it's worth clarifying. To say that God wants to become, us to become more like Jesus does not mean he wants more first-century Jewish single males in full-time ministry. No, he wants us to take on the persona or character of Jesus in our inmost being, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says later in Galatians. I find Dallas Willard's definition of discipleship helpful here. As Jesus' disciple... I'm learning from him how to live my life as he would live it if he were I. Let me say that again. As Jesus' disciple, I am learning from him how to live my life as he would live it if he were I. I'm not living in first century Palestine. I'm a restaurant owner in a pandemic. How would Jesus do that? How would he treat his staff? I'm an ER doctor treating unvaccinated people. How would Jesus interact with those patients? I'm a parent trying to care for kids in the midst of a really hard time. How would Jesus do that? But Jesus uniquely in us has more to do than just vocational implications. It impacts how we think about what growing in Christ will look like personality-wise, interest-wise. As we grow in looking more like Jesus, we become more the person God intended when he originally created us. Like a good parent, God delights in how we are uniquely made. He does not have a one-size-fits-all for Christ-likeness. There is no one Jesus patent we are all to copy and look precisely the same. God doesn't believe all Christians must love books or be extroverted and outgoing or highly regulated without emotion. He enjoys the diversity and the creativity. Or as one writer put it, God doesn't want to exchange you. He wants to redeem you. You don't just become holier. You become youier. <laughs> When you and I are growing in Christ-likeness, yes, some of our desires and tendencies will be checked, balanced, to be sure, but never in a way that obliterates the unique way in which he has created us to reflect his image. Which means you and I don't need to be frustrated by the confines of our limitations. We need not, like David and Saul's armor, try on a spiritual practice that just doesn't fit this season or stage of life or our personality. At times, we may need to be pushed into trying something new, a new habit or practice the church over 2,000 years has found helpful. 
but only when it is an invitation from God, not because we are copying someone else. So that's a little about the what of growing in Christ-likeness. What about the how? Number three on your outline touches on a few dispositions I see in the Bible that promote growth if we want to be incubators of Christ's life in us. First, listen to God's invitation. Mary would have missed out on Jesus being formed in her if she had not been open and eager to hear God's voice. Now, true, it's easier to hear God's invitation when it's through the audible voice of an angel standing in front of you. Would that it would be for us? But do we actually believe God can and does speak to us and guide us? Would we even want him to? I think too often we're afraid of what he might ask. So we maintain a certain level of noise, ensuring we don't have to contend with his invitation. What if every day this week you asked God this question? Is there anything you want to say to me right now? Anything I need to hear from you about how I've been living or the goals I'm striving for? I'm willing to hear it. I am the Lord's servant after all. A second posture that promotes growth is to believe. It's to say with Mary, I've never seen that happen before. I have no idea how it's going to work, but I'm going to trust that you are leading me and take you at your word. I'm willing to live in to the mystery of this. Friends, whenever God is involved, there is mystery. Which is why a very important posture is the third. Relinquish control or submit to God's work in your life. As with Mary, the Holy Spirit is the one who creates the life of Christ in us. We cannot make it happen. We are a part. We're a womb or an incubator. And God does not override our will, so we've got to give him permission and opportunity to work. That's the role of the spiritual practices. But we cannot make it happen. We are not in control. And we still do our part. When we actually listen to him and relinquish being in charge, we may find he has something he wants us to do. We may find he has an invitation for us. Will we obey? Will we, like Mary, have the posture of unquestioned obedience? Do whatever he tells you. Isn't that the test of whether we actually believe what a person says? Now, often what God is telling me comes plainly through reading the Bible. Forgive 70 times, seven times. Or it is more blessed to give than to receive. But sometimes God tells me something I need to hear through another person or in worship. One final posture that promotes growth, letter E, patient endurance. Take the long view. <laughs> a baby in a womb takes nine months. We don't put a toddler in a crib and expect to come back the next morning to a 16-year-old. It takes time. That is an absurd and unreasonable thing to expect of that toddler to grow overnight. That's like working out twice at a gym after your New Year's resolution and saying, oh, this isn't working, I'm not becoming stronger, I better stop. Unfortunately, and very counter-culturally, this kind of change is a slow grow. And if we do not constantly remind ourselves for that, of that, we will not be prepared for the long haul. We'll get discouraged 
and languish in our efforts. We must hang in there and trust growth is happening even when we cannot see the changes from day to day. But even when we have these postures in place, we are still prone to discouragement. There's one final point that's critical for us in understanding how we grow in Christ. And it's this last point, number four. Growth in Christ requires others, requires the church. We were never meant to do this alone. When Paul writes to the Galatians and says, until Christ is formed in you, he's not saying you, Dorothy, or Stephanus, or Lydia. He's saying you, the church, in Galatia. It's plural. In fact, as Rich has said throughout this series, most of the one another's in the Bible are you plural. Y'all, you all. <laughs> when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he responded, love God, love others, from which we derived our purpose statement as a church. Jesus' point was, the love of God will be lived out in your love for others. One writer put it like this, the process of being formed in the image of Christ takes place in the midst of our relationships with others, not apart from them. So if you want to know whether a person is growing spiritually, maybe a good test is not how long they spend reading their Bible in the morning. It's the nature and quality of their relationships. Are they growing in love? In the church, where we are united in relationship through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the head of our body, our relationships with one another serve to both communicate God's love to us as well as give, gives us opportunity to communicate that love to others. It is both. We receive from others and we give to others. Sometimes when we gather, I'm discouraged and I need to hear how God is at work in your life. And sometimes you may be going down a path oblivious to the negative repercussions and you need others to ask some hard questions to help you reconsider. But this can only happen if we are, like Rich talked about last week, an authentic community, sharing honestly and transparently with one another. So when we think about discipleship, it isn't enough that we think about each one of us individually, personally growing in Christ. Though, of course, that is essential. We are to be thinking about corporately how we together at City Church look more and more like Jesus in all his ways. Now, I know this is a season of transition. <laughs> I know many are feeling some pain around that and grieving changes. And we are feeling that too as a staff. But I am also aware that when Jesus is the mix, is in the mix, as we were reminded of in worship, death often leads to new life. I have been wondering and asking God, what new life are you seeking to create in us in this season? What's that going to look like in three months, in six months, in three years? What do we need to do in the meantime to be prepared for that? I want to encourage you to be praying along those lines and to look forward to what that baby is going to look like. So as we close today, it's fitting. I have two areas for us to think about, you singular and you plural, us together at City Church. For you personally, what is it God is inviting you into? How do you want the character of Jesus to be more fully formed in your life? 
And how might that happen? Maybe you'll want to talk with a trusted friend or one of the pastors to get some help with that. Maybe, like Mary, you're experiencing a significant unplanned circumstance, an unexpected surgery or physical limitation or something else. Could you, instead of seeing that as a barrier to your growth, see it as a means by which God wants to help you grow in Christ-likeness? And then you, plural, us. Kara's already mentioned this, but in two weeks, we're going to make a transition here at City Church. On February 6th, we're shifting to one worship service at 9.30, in part so we can add a second hour of formation for all ages, what we're calling Sunday morning communities. Now, I want to be clear. We are not forcing anyone. (laughs) We just want you to be engaged with God's word and God's people, scripture plus community in some way. So if that is happening in vibrant, healthy ways in your growth group, wonderful. Continue with that. If not, we're trying to help you. We're trying to make this easier. We're trying to give you some structure, a time and a place and childcare, stacking a habit. You're already here on Sunday. Add an extra hour on just to make it easier. So maybe your next step would be to join us on this experiment of 16 weeks through February 6th, through May 22nd, ending before Memorial Day. And I know Kara said commit to February. I'm going to ask you to commit for the long haul. Relationships take time. Obviously, when you're sick, when you're out of town, that happens. But I want to encourage you to see this as an experiment. Maybe growing in relationship with others, you may find actually enhances your faith in a way that wouldn't happen without them. You can talk with any of us on staff about your part, what you want your part to be. We're pretty excited about what could be birthed in us through this time. Like John Calvin said, we want Jesus to be born in us so we might live his life. Because the world needs more Jesuses. May we, like Mary, be responsive to the ways in which God is seeking to form his son in us. Let's pray. Oh, God, we, we want it to be so. You are the perfect one. You respond always with grace and truth, the perfect measure and balance of both. And we need it, and our world needs it. Would you, Holy Spirit, fashion and form, move among our church as you moved among the waters, as you stirred and overpowered Mary? Would you overpower us again, that we together and individually would be formed into the likeness of your son for his sake. We pray this would be increasingly more until he comes again. Amen.